You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. It's safe to say that at the dawn of the year 2020, there was a well-established B2B marketing playbook in place. You might be one of the many marketers who were building out MarTech stacks, analyzing data, generating content, and exhibiting at in-person events. Has anything that's happened since caused B2B marketers to rethink any of those strategies? Should they be rethinking some of those strategies? I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. It seems like now, in the early summer of 2021, might be a good time to revisit the B2B marketing playbook as we know it. And for that conversation, we're joined by Gaetano Donardi, Head of Growth and Demand Gen for Business Communications Provider Nextiva. If you're thinking about the year ahead and where you should devote your marketing resources and your energy, Gaetano has a few thoughts you may want to consider. Have a listen. Gaetano Dinardi, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a second and tell us who you are and what you do? What's up, Michael? Thanks, man. Um, yeah, long story short, you know, I'm a musician turned growth marketer. So I got my start in music and music business, um, you know, just by kind of my passion and my, my love for music. That's what I thought I'd be doing my whole life. And then somehow that helped me kind of stumble into marketing started by blogging, writing, and then I loved SEO. I fell in love with SEO from that point. I worked at various software companies. Um, I've consulted for a lot of cool companies along the way. Fast forward to today, here I am. I, I lead growth marketing at Nextiva. We were just featured in TechCrunch uh, for being one of the few companies that have passed 200 million in revenue, but we have not received any outside funding. So it's been a fun ride, man. What can I say? I never thought I would be in a position like now where I'm managing a team and people are asking me for my opinions and what I feel is a good way to operate in growth marketing, but that's how life goes sometimes, man. So in a really short summary, that's, that's uh, how it all happened. It's where the journey takes you. That's it. We had a whole bunch of guests a few months back who had started out in journalism and gotten into marketing. And now the trend I'm seeing is people with music backgrounds have gotten into marketing. That is you're, you're probably the third or fourth person I've talked to in the past couple of months who have had that connection. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a lot that is overlapping between the two worlds. You know, you have to have some science there. You have to have obviously art, passion, creativity, left brain, right brain, um, all that, I guess it helps out. So I think, I think a lot of musicians too, like when you start out, you're the person you've got to market yourself. If you don't do it, nobody's going to do it for you. Right. And so you kind of, if you're not born with it, you figure it out because you've got to get your name out there. And that's basically marketing. Basically, yes. Musicians, music producers, songwriters, you know, even artists, uh, really anyone, anyone in the creative space trying to do something, DJs, whatever. Um, you have to actually treat yourself like a startup. You have to do all the same things they have to do. You have to def- define who your audience is, have a product worth selling, you have to know what uh, distribution channels work in terms of reaching those audiences. So that's the same problems, you know what I mean? And so because I felt what those problems are firsthand as a music producer trying to, you know, grow a brand, grow a fan base, uh, build an email list, grow a YouTube channel, grow traffic, all that, build fans. 
um, you know, B2B companies got to do the same thing. So because there's all that overlap, I, I know what's up. And uh, I guess that made the transition a little bit easier for me. Let's start off on the subject of marketing technology or MarTech as it's become known. You've been pretty open about your beliefs that a lot of the tools that help with automation and scalability maybe haven't been as good for marketers or for marketing as a lot of people seem to believe. Now, is that a software issue? Is it a user issue, the way they use the software? What are your thoughts on marketing technology these days? Well, you know, it's easy to just believe what everyone else says. It's easy when an army of tech companies just decide to follow the serious decisions demand waterfall process and say, well, eventually you're going to hit a point where if you don't have the right technology, you're going to fail or you're going to be too slow or other companies are going to outpace you because they have the technology that you don't have. So with that being said, um, when every tech company out there is creating this sort of narrative or storyline that you need to use all these technologies. And if you don't use them, you're going to be left behind. Well, then it leaves marketers feeling sort of like, oh, you know, everyone's saying I need to do this. Um, it seems like it seems like everyone else is doing this. I'm one of the only ones that's not doing it. So maybe I'm being left behind. Maybe I'm falling back in the race because I don't have all this cool tech to actually do what all these other cool companies and all my colleagues and peers are doing or what I'm seeing on social media is happening. But the reality is often the default to new technologies is not always the right thing because you're, for one, you know, you're not even trying to think about what is the actual problem. Maybe I don't need a technology to solve this problem. Maybe this problem can be solved in-house with the resources we already have. Maybe we have a tool already in-house that does what that technology solves for. So a lot of times what you end up having is like all these technologies layered on top of each other. Um, and it just becomes a big clunky system because you have all these texts now, um, <clears throat> a lot of them now overlap and do the same thing. You're seeing a convergence of categories and technologies all the time. And so like, especially in the, in the space that my company is in, you know, unified communications and UCAS and all these, all these, uh, communication tools. Now they all fall into a category of UCAS where everyone's doing the same thing, video conferencing, uh, voice over IP, digital phone system technology, cloud phone systems, even CRMs now bundling into all that, right? So every voice over IP technology provider is looking into acquiring some sort of gong style call uh, analysis with AI system built in. So you're seeing a convergence. So eventually, like there's going to be all these tools that do the same thing. Uh, and they are going to do a lot of the same functions. So um, that's my rant on technology. You know, there's so much more I guess I could say about it, but maybe I'll just pause there. Well, you the other thing, so they're all converging and they're all kind of putting together the same suite. But if you started early collecting applications before they all consolidated, you all, you ended up with a bunch of point solutions and a bunch of relationships to manage and a bunch of licenses that expire at different times. That's not making your life any easier either. Yeah, that exactly. Exactly. So, you know, not every, not every company is going to figure this out. That's, that's going to be <laughs> the other, that's going to be a tricky part. Cause I'll tell you, I'll, here's an example, right? Nextiva flagship product, voice over IP cloud phone system. Guess what kinds of companies now are, are offering VoIP solutions. Zoom. Nobody could have ever predicted that Zoom would have gotten to the voice over IP game. But they are because what they're realizing is that 
see, there's this concept of super fans and super consumers. So Zoom is basically figuring out, all right, those, those kinds of companies and consumers that go nuts on video conferencing and they pay, you know, the max amount for the video conferencing packages with unlimited, you know, participants in a room and unlimited minutes, right? All this stuff. They're probably super consumers of VoIP as well. You know, um, there, I'm sure there's going to be times where they don't need video. They just need voice over IP. They probably don't want their sales teams using their personal cell phones for business calls and, you know, so on and so forth. So Zoom is figuring out, all right, it's an adjacent bucket. We can actually get into an existing market by just expanding our product suite. And nobody could have ever predicted that Zoom, which started off, you know, brilliantly as, as they did with video conferencing, would get into VoIP. And now vice versa, all the VoIP companies are trying to get into video conferencing. Um, but the reality is it's going to be very hard to take away Mindshare from Zoom um, because they are, you know, the, the, category, the firmly planted category leader in video conferencing. You know, you could say Skype was first um, and a lot of other companies were first, but just because you're first doesn't mean you're going to stay on top and, and maintain it. That, that's just basically the deal there. I was just recording an episode with Christian Hawkson from Norway, and we were talking about marketers overthinking and maybe overcomplicating some of the basic things. And we were wondering if the proliferation of marketing applications and of the data they generate played a big role in that, because now you've got all this stuff to analyze and you can get paralysis by analysis looking through stuff and you have all these tools and maybe you get away from the basics, like we were saying, the basic things that you may have learned about marketing from your musician side of your life. Yeah, I, I actually don't use that many tools on a day to day basis. I, I shrink the, the amount of tools I, I use because um, the reality is for, for marketing, you actually are going back to fundamentals in a lot of ways. There's a lot of cool, fancy gadgets and gizmos out there, but nothing then getting close to the customer and listening to sales calls and even talking to customers in many cases will be your, your absolute best asset. So the, the, the most important marketing skills that are <clears throat> the fundamentals today that will never get lost is uh, great copywriting, listening to customers, talking to customers, great messaging, great positioning, great product marketing, great SEO, great content marketing, just great execution, great fundamentals. Those are the things that will never get lost. Even if you're doing ABM, sure, you can get one of these highly expensive tools to guide you once you get to a place where like, all right, all these things are ready now and you want to scale ABM. But even to get ABM running and off the ground, you need great basic marketing fundamentals, a, a defined target accounts list, uh, defined audience, defined messaging, defined content, and then a plan actually to, to go out and attack those pods. So you can't get the technology in place to scale stuff unless you have the fundamentals and the foundations of the house. Uh, the concrete has to be firmly planted and set before you decide to really go high and build a skyscraper and, and run with it. So that's my, my little two cents on that. So you brought up content and SEO. I went back and looked this up because I remembered the phrase. I just didn't remember when they said it. It was December of 2018 when Forrester issued a report that called a lot of the B2B marketing content out there crap. Their word, not mine. So to me, this is one of those things where maybe everyone recognizes all the noise that's in the market, all the content that's being generated, but they don't really seem to recognize their role in creating it. 
what are your thoughts on content and SEO in B2B? Yeah, I mean, they're not wrong. There, there is, they're not wrong. There is a lot of crap. Um, and it's not, <clears throat> so there's, there's really, you know, there's so many different kinds of content in B2B now. Not everything can rank. Not everything can be perfectly optimized. Sometimes in B2B, you got to sacrifice SEO to go for that sort of abstract, visionary, category creation, brand content. You know, you'll see a landing page with 250 words on it. It's never going to rank. And it's talking about some kind of brand friendly, visionary, big picture idea type thing. That that kind of stuff's not going to rank. That doesn't mean it's bad, but that just means it's a different kind of content, right? So then, you know, for SEO, it's not the kind of content really that you're going to promote on social media and blow up all the time. Like for Nexiva, for example, we have very technical content, like how, how to configure your, your SIP trunks, right? That, that's not a topic that you're going to see me promoting on LinkedIn that's going to get tons of shares. That's going to capture silent traffic. That's going to rank highly in search, and that's going to meet whoever is searching for that because we're going to create content that is going to rank for that. So they're going to find it only when they search. So that's the concept of, of silent traffic. You know, silent traffic can still be very powerful and still be very effective. But the problem is if you create content that doesn't rank and then you have more content that is not being showcased on your website in a way that can easily be found, or if you don't already have a big following, or if you don't already have a big email list, or if you don't already have a good organic flywheel to where, you know, really, this is what it comes down to. The companies that are creating all this content are not thinking about how is it going to get distributed? How's it going to get consumed? How are we going to get it out there? How are we going to get eyeballs on it? As Rand Fishkin likes to always say, who will amplify this and why? That, that is what uh, companies are forgetting. They, they, cre- they want to create, 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 create. It's like, no different than a musician. You create all these songs. How the hell are you going to get people to come to the shows? How are you going to get people to download your music, add it to their favorite playlist, listen to it over and over again, follow you on Spotify, follow you on Apple Music, follow you on all these like social channels, right? It, it's really no different. So when you're talking about crap content, yeah, there's like, there's content quality problems. And then there's like, I just cannot effectively distribute this content. It might be really good, but the resonance is low because I don't know how to distribute it. I don't know how to get it to the people that matter. I don't even know who it's for in some cases. Some companies are like, we just need to create content. So when you get, a, when you get so far away from the, from the actual, like, this is where you connect content and demand. When you get so far away from the outcomes and you're just thinking about, all right, I got to meet a content calendar commitment. That's when you start getting up. So all that to say, think about how it fits into the distribution. How am I going to get eyeballs on this? Why am I creating this in the first place? What is, you know, like, don't be a content marketer that just gets stuck in. Hey, I hit publish, you know? Yay. Congrats. So that's kind of my rant on that. I see a lot of people who do like a gap analysis and then they say, we don't have this piece. We don't have a piece for this person or for that person. Okay, there's probably more to it than they're sharing with me. If creating that piece for that person is going to increase sales and you have, as you said, a plan, this piece, this is where we're going to publish it. This is how we're going to distribute it and amplify it. um, That's great, but I don't have 
a piece of content who fits the persona that my uncle Joe is in is maybe not the right direction to take when you're planning your content. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. You know, um, maybe, maybe uncle Joe is, is, is not, of <laughs> is not a high budget buyer right now. And you may not need a lot of content for uncle Joe, you know, maybe creating content for uncle Joe does not align with the company goal of going up market. This is Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. You're listening to B2B Nation with our guest Gaetano Denardi from Nextiva. Just a reminder that DemandFest, our half-day virtual event for B2B marketers, is coming up on August 4th, this time with a twist. This summer, we are marketers on a mission. And in addition to hearing from some of the best minds in B2B marketing, you can help us support one of our favorite charities, Youth Villages. You can register and learn more at demandfest.tech. Now back to B2B Nation. The area of marketing I've been most skeptical about over the past couple of years is influencer marketing. There's a part of me, and I'm kind of showing my age here, I just don't see it as particularly different from like the paid spokespeople from a few years back, more than a few years back. There's different media involved, obviously, there's a lot of social media and influencer marketing. But like I've worked with marketers who've hired influencers and then the relationship's over and then they're upset that a week later the influencer is talking up one of their competing products and i'm like you should not be shocked with that you paid them to talk about you and now they're paying them to talk about them what are your thoughts on influencer marketing yeah so why yeah so i mean so many things i could i could say about influencer marketing and in, in b2b so like when when you hear influencer marketing outside of b2b um, the, the first thing you, you typically like default to is like B2C style influencer marketing. So you, so you think about like, uh, girls in bikinis and thongs on Instagram, plugging your product and saying, you know, click link in my bio, you know, slash blah, blah, blah to check out and like, give me credit for the product that you're going to buy because you saw me talking about it. But, um, in, in, in B2B, you know, it's not like that. You can't, you, if you're, I'm just gonna use Gong as, as an example. If you're Gong, you're not gonna go to, you know, Sports Illustrated and say, hey, do a bunch of Instagram posts pl- plugging in Gong uh, on Instagram. It's that that's not the kind of influencer marketing we're talking about. I think we're we're talking about it in a in a way where you you engage with brands um, that that you know may be popular within your your niche or your target audience or a certain person within B two B like. Uh, Let's let's say, for example, like you, you do some analysis on your audience, you find out your audience is like highly right wing, highly Republican, and you get some like right wing political figure to uh, endorse your product or brand. Right. That that is, is, is what we're talking about here. The reason why a lot of companies don't really like doing this strategy is because it's very hard to measure the the impact of something like this. So like, you know, for example, like Nextiva, we did a. Uh, 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 campaign with the Pac-12 network. We found that in our within our audience, uh, college football and and alma matership is like an affinity, a strong affinity within our audience. So we took a gamble on Pac-12, but there's no ROI that's directly attributable to the money we spent. So you can't say having you know the Nextiva brand logo on all the commercials for Stanford football games has X direct impact on pipeline. You just cannot say that. And so I think that, you know, really the, the, the hard thing for companies is it's not a dollars in dollars out equation when it comes to influencer marketing. You just really can't do that. 
And so because it's so hard to measure, a lot of companies don't want to do it. But I do believe it does hold a place in the future of B2B marketing. Um, if you can find somebody that's highly influential, that can that can spread a message among your target audience and reach that audience for a much cheaper cost than other channels and, and they can reach that audience more effectively, then yeah, you're going to have success with B2B influencer marketing. You just got to figure out how to do it in a way that's not corny. It's more of a brand play. Like you said, it's not as measurable as a lot of the direct marketing tactics that are out there. So it's kind of a brand play. It's going to be hard to show value, but I think who you're associating with and you know what is their track record? Uh, if you get somebody in one week, they're talking about you and the next week they're talking about somebody else. And the week after that, they're talking about somebody else. I think sooner or later in B2B, the audience is smart enough that they're just going to look at that and say, okay, that's who's paying them this week. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's a lot, there's also a lot of problems that come with B2B influencer marketing for like, like one is kind of like you said, aside from the fact that they could be promoting one brand this week, another brand the next week, how do you even know that this person is even worth it? How, how do you, how is there a way to accurately with a high degree of confidence say, all right, Grant Cardone, I'm just gonna throw that name out there. Yes, the people who follow Grant Cardone are the same people we wanna market to. There's a high degree of overlap between Grant Cardone's audience and the audience of people who would be interested in buying our product. It's really tough to say that with a high degree of confidence. You might just be able to guess yeah, there may be some third-party tools out there that can analyze his Facebook follower audience or his his Twitter followers or something like that. Um, but th- there's without surveying or talking to the people that follow Grant Cardone, there's no way to truly know with a hundred or with a high degree of certainty that there's a good overlap there. So a lot of times you're spending a lot of money on someone's popularity. The problem with that is, you know, high follower counts are not the best way to always decide who's going to be the biggest impact for your influencer marketing strategy on your brand. I think uh, Rand Fishkin called this the Wall Street Journal marketing problem, where, for example, your CMO will say, hey, can you get us into the Wall Street Journal to the, to the marketing team? And the marketing team will say, yeah, we'll, we'll try. And CMO gets hype about the idea of getting into the Wall Street Journal. Then marketing team comes back and says, hey, we have this far less popular publication, but much greater audience focus. Let's let's get featured here. Or, or we did get featured here, but we couldn't get into the Wall Street Journal. CMO will say, ah, that's not, not super exciting. Sorry, it's not Wall Street Journal. Right. So you have that problem of like, yes, big, well-known publication with a lot of tier one pizzazz that everyone knows and you can spread it around the seed level boardroom and everyone will get excited about it. But there may be very, very little to no audience overlap there. It's just great because it's a big popular name. Then on the flip side of that, you could have a, a lesser known publication with lesser tier one buzz, pizzazz, wow factor, but higher degree of audience overlap, more focus, more relevant audience C-level is not going to care as much about it because it's not sexy. And that's the problem. And this is part of my issue with influencer marketing. We're talking about marketing the way it was done like 35 years ago. Look, the audience of the New York Times overlaps with the audience that we're trying to reach. Let's buy ad space in the New York Times, but it's not measurable. 
it's expensive. You just don't know. And I, that, that part of me, that's the weird, that's the weird thing about a lot of these influencer marketing ideas is we spent like the last 30 years telling ourselves we don't need to do it this way because we've got tools and measurement and other ways to distribute. And then people go, well, we're, we're not going to call it paid advertising or branding. We're going to call it influencer marketing and we're going to do it. But you're doing the same thing you were doing 35 years ago that you wanted to get away from then. Agreed. Agreed. And then, you know, the bottom line too, is that in terms of authenticity and integrity of the influencers that are out there, um, you just don't know what's being manipulated, what's true, what isn't. I mean, a lot of B2C companies get into problems with this. They start going after who's popular on Instagram and then what they realize, like, oh, 70% of their followers are fake. They have such high follower counts, but really low post engagements. Hmm. How can somebody with 500,000 followers only get like 200 likes on a post? Because they're on, not real followers. Right? <laughs> exactly. They're not real followers. So companies are, a lot of companies, they just kind of get blinded by the sticker shock of the follower counts. Yep. And they see that and they're like, oh, we're hitting a, we're hitting a home run. Yeah. Well, not really, because you didn't take the time to understand whether or not those are fake followers or bot followers or how engaged those audiences are. You know, e even so, impressions, likes, these are low quality ways of oh, yeah. <laughs> measuring whether or not an influencer campaign is good or not. So, yeah, I guess the, the, the main point of all this is there's a lot of problems when it comes to influencer marketing that could come up. So if you are in a B2B company and you're looking to kind of think of outside the box ways to, to you know, nail some messaging across with, with different audiences or your target audiences, like just be careful, you know, yeah. do your due diligence and really just do as, try and get as much, you know, data as you can before you, you, you decide to make one of these, you know, really big investments. So, yeah, we didn't even really go into it, but it's probably worth the few bucks it costs these days to do a background check on your influencer as well. That never hurts either. Let's look out about a year from now. We're coming off of a crappy year. There's no other way to put it. What do you think we might be talking about if we were re to reconnect in about 12 months? I would probably say that, you know, the, the main difference would be that COVID, the COVID environment will be much slower because, you know, a, a year from now, much, many more vaccines will be going out. And so um, you may be, you may have things like live events coming back. So that, that to me is probably the big, the biggest difference as, you know, more people get vaccinated and um, more people, I think, just start to get antsy about getting back into the in-person networking groove. You're, you're going to start to see probably in-person events make a comeback. Then you're going to have people like me who don't like in-person and, and really like keeping it uh, socially distant, period, because we're introverts. You'll, you'll see people like me probably opting out of all that. You'll probably, you'll probably see like a big sort of fork in the road there of people who don't want to go back to the office versus people who do and people who want to get back in the mix. So that, I was going to my, my ask you where you fell on the in-person events. There's people who there's a few people who can't wait. To get to an in-person event, there's a few people who don't care if they ever come back. I think most people fall in the middle. I think a lot of people have kind of taken the past year to reflect on like the value of these big, huge, noisy, expensive events and that maybe smaller, more intimate things where you don't have to travel as far, like a regional type setup might have more value. It'll be interesting. A lot yeah, of marketers I'm like those leads. They like the leads where you 
okay, <laughs> back in the day, shook hands with the person, <laughs> talked to the person up front um, in person. That was always a very valuable lead for a lot of companies. It's going to be hard for them to walk away from that completely. So there's a lot here. Uh, for, for, for one, most events are incredibly inefficient. Companies are just so used to just throwing huge dollar amounts at events and the, the output from those investments are often terrible. The reason why the, the outputs from those events are terrible is because people are not really there to buy software, if you think about it. Like me personally, I've never gotten excited about an event because I wanted to go and learn about the softwares that were there and I, with the idea or goal of buying one. Um, so when you think about intent channels, that's really what it comes down to. When I, when I go to Google and I search for, you know, a certain solution, all right, there's probably some research being done or involved there because I'm preparing to buy something. Or when I'm asking a collection of my peers, what do you use to solve this problem? You know, there's probably some buying intent there. If I'm reading review sites, there's probably some buying intent there. But when I go to a conference, especially in a post-COVID era, um, the number one priority is going to be just kind of, you know, rubbing shoulders and mixing human energy together again, right? That and just kind of talking in person and just, you know, kind of just relaxing with people again, that's like going to be the top thing. Then it's probably going to be uh, check out some sessions, it's probably going to be see who the speakers are, see what kind of offsite networking is available. But what's at the very bottom of everyone's priority list? What's at the what's what's the least most unsexy thing? The least important, most unsexy thing? The huge, disgusting row of booths full of soft, <laughs> <laughs> full of full of tech bros with logos on their t-shirts and slogans and gimmicks, you know. And now uh, germs. <laughs> yeah, these 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 uh, badge scanning vultures, right? So that's the absolute least important and, and, and least favorite and unsexy part of any conference. The only, everyone knows the only reason that they're there is to help fund it. All that to say, I think companies got to reinvent the way that they're going to do events once they start up again, because people's mindsets are going to be probably more turned off to checking out software than ever before, because they're just going to be so interested in talking and bullshit partying and networking again yeah people don't even really go for the sessions anymore i you I didn't even you didn't even touch on the locations it's like there's a too. lot of people who don't need an excuse to go to new orleans or orlando or that's <laughs> that too vegas of course vegas right? of course vegas right so, and that's and and that's where people are having events by the way like people aren't having events in these boring places people are having events in miami now they're going to be having events in Vegas. So now there's going to be more distraction. Basically, you're just paying for airtime if you're a brand doing events when COVID reopens. So, right. <laughs> and plus the, the, the true, this is the thing that like you don't realize until you're like more experienced, but the true value of an event, the true, true, true value of the event is really in two areas. One is in the the off-site networking that you do. So you find people who are of interest and high value to you that are going to be there and you and you take them away from all the madness. You find some super high value person, take them out to a nice expensive dinner, something like that. A lot of value in doing that. The other value is in the content that you create while you're at the event. 
So if you're not there doing like podcast interviews or doing little like side clips with, you know, high value people that you could republish on social media, doing some kind of content series, doing some kind of interview series, doing some kind of write up on the sessions, doing some kind of summary, you know, something along the lines of that. Like if you're not doing something like that, that you can repurpose and reuse over and over again, then, you know, you're really missing out on the, on the true value of what it means to, to, to actually uh, be a part of one of these huge in-person events. So I, I would recommend if you're a company, skip the booth altogether and go in on content creation and networking just piggyback off of what everyone else is already there for, you know, you can go to Dreamforce and be a leech and make out like a fat rat without spending a dime. You know, that, of, of course, I have kind of a bit of an outside the box approach to this, but, or, or philosophy, if you want to call it that, but that's just kind of where I fall. Bottom line is, uh, if you're going to do an event, do it in an incredibly unsexy location, and then people are showing intent just by showing up. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite tool, Gaetano? The thing that if we took it away from you, your productivity would just plummet. Yeah. Favorite, favorite marketing tool is Ahrefs. So I, I, that's, I, that's come up before. Yeah, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. Uh, what can I say? My favorite data source. Um, I can find out trending topics. I can find out backlink analysis. I can do competitor research. I could do keyword research. Could do advertising research. I could see what competitors are spending on what keywords. I mean, um, I can find um, ways, uh, broad ways to pitch topics to journalists for for press and PR. I mean, there, there's a million things you can do with Ahrefs. Um, it, it would be the one tool that if it was gone tomorrow uh, would probably hurt my chest a little bit. So that's my favorite tool. Gaetano Donardi, thanks for appearing on B2B Nation. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again to Nextiva's Gaetano Donardi for joining us on this episode of B2B Nation. If you found this episode insightful, share it with a friend or colleague and subscribe to B2B Nation on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to the team at Technology Advice for their support, including Sarah Wingate, Amy Dunn, and Emily Whalen. Rock out to Mnemonics in the Guild, and we'll catch you next time on B2B Nation.